All right, so how can I, I kind of have a polling question this morning that I want to ask all of you, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer before I ask this question, but how many of you would say that right now you are making intentional choices in order to completely ruin your life? One, okay, we're making intentional choices on purpose, but, but most of us are not trying to make choices that we know are going to end up badly, right? Like none of us want to make choices that are going to end up poorly are going to end up putting us in a bad position. We're all kind of trying to figure out what life is about. We're trying to figure out how we can make the most out of our lives. And, and what we're doing is we're all making decisions that we believe are going, to, are going to lead us towards happiness. We're making decisions that are going to lead us toward a healthy life. And so what every single person on earth, every single person in this room is doing is trying to use their best wisdom, kind of this accumulated insight over time in order to figure out how to live the best life that we can live. All of us are tapping into some sort of wisdom, some sort of set of of rules, some sort of set of ideology, some sort of set of experience to help us make sense of life. And the question is, is where do we get that from? Where are we receiving that wisdom? So all of us are trying to define what this wisdom looks like, and every one of us is getting that wisdom from one of two places. We're either finding that wisdom from, from our own experience. It's either self-determined. We're taking uh, you know, how we've lived, our experiences in life, uh, our upbringing, and we're, and we're taking that and saying, okay, this is how I'm going to determine how to live the best life possible. And so it's completely subjective. It's completely up to me and, and, and my experiences. Or there's an objective wisdom out there that all of us have the opportunity to press into. That there's a true wisdom that isn't dependent upon our experiences, isn't solely dependent upon our upbringing, it isn't solely dependent upon us to figure it out, but it's a true wisdom that can be given to us. And that's where the book of Proverbs comes in. As as you guys have been going through this series, The Way of Wisdom, we're looking toward a transcendent wisdom, a wisdom that is true for all of us, that is helping us make sense of the life that we're living. And so the book of Proverbs, it's been said, is the Ten Commandments applied to every possible situation in our lives. That Proverbs is really kind of drawing out the principles of the Ten Commandments, how to live a life that truly honors God, uh, as the Lord above all, a life that truly seeks to love and care for our neighbor, that, the t- that this is really kind of drawing that out and it applies that in every situation in our lives. And so if you look at the first part of the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, what is detailed for us is one of two paths. We see one path that is the path of wisdom, and we see another path that's described as the path of evil or the path of folly. So the path of wisdom is described for us as one that is a path of virtue, it's a path of integrity, it's it's a path of of generosity, it's a path of, of selflessness that leads towards peace, and then the other path is a path of evil and folly that leads to selfishness and pride and ultimately ruin. All of us want to be on the wise path. And so in Proverbs 2, Solomon, the author of most of Proverbs, is writing this, this, these bits of advice to his son. This is fatherly advice. You can imagine if you ever like went as a kid like fishing with your dad or went to a baseball game. This is like that, that father-son moment where he's giving just that bit of knowledge, that bit of wisdom. And there's probably no one better in, in human history outside of Jesus that you want to get some wisdom from than Solomon. 
Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, asked the Lord for wisdom. Solomon was taking the throne from his father David, and he asked the Lord, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon is asking for wisdom, and this actually gives us a really good working definition of wisdom. John Piper says that wisdom is knowledge, like a a practical knowledge, not just head knowledge, but the ability to know something and then apply it. Situational insight, the ability to look in a situation, discern between good and evil, and then the resolve that together have the greatest likelihood of success in achieving the attended righteous goal. That we take the knowledge we know, we're able to discern in every situation, and then have the resolve and the courage to make a wise and godly decision. And what the scriptures tell us is that when we apply wisdom, that it leads to life, that it leads to flourishing. And we know that God is committed to us. He's committed to us having a life that is truly flourishing, that is abundant. And then he gave us his word in order to lead us to that life. And so Solomon knows this. Solomon has experienced a life where he's made a lot of really poor decisions, but he's also made a lot of really wise decisions. And he wants his son to have that type of life. He wants him to press into this wisdom, to truly believe and honor and cherish this wisdom as the means and the pathway towards a fulfilling life. And so we see kind of this if-then statement. Anybody remember that from science class, the hypothesis? Yeah, the if-then statement. So if you will truly cherish wisdom, if you'll go after wisdom, then you're going to have this fulfilling life. But we need to understand that this is not like some kind of like prosperity gospel promise. This isn't like some sort of promise like, if I do blank, then God's going to do this. If I, I'm only going to get out of it what I put in. There's a principle here. It's principle, not promise. And we need to think of all the wisdom literature and context to understand what's being said here. If you look at Ecclesiastes, which Solomon also wrote, we see that everything's in, everything in created order is pretty confused and messed up. Would anybody here agree that we, we live in a broken and fallen world? Like, Things just aren't quite the way they're supposed to be, right? So sometimes this just doesn't quite work out like it's supposed to. It doesn't always work. It's not like if I do all the right things and nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. That's, That's not how things work. We live in a broken world. We see sometimes like in the book of Job, Job who was considered a righteous and a blameless man, his world fell apart. Sometimes the hidden justice of God, we can't see that God is is working all things out for our good and for his glory. But there's a general principle here that if we're making wise and godly choices, they do tend to pan out. Look, you have a much greater likelihood of surviving driving in the road, maybe not in Boston, but uh, by, by, by following the traffic laws, right? Like if I decide to drive on the left side of the road versus the right side of the road, I'm probably going to get hit by another car, right? If I decide to obey the speed limit, I'm probably going to have a greater chance of not ending up in an accident, but it doesn't mean that someone else might not hit us. It means there's a greater likelihood that things are going to pan out well. But the promise that comes in here that, that underlies all of this is that for those who know God, there is a promise that one day everything will be made right. That even though things may not be right here in the moment, everything, even though things in this world may be broken, that Jesus came to restore and make all things new. And that there's a wisdom here that's being offered not only to Solomon's son, but it's being offered to you and I as well. 
So how do we get in on this wisdom? There's a few ways that we do this that we see from Proverbs chapter two. The first way is that you need to pursue wisdom with all that you've got. Pursue wisdom with everything that is in you. Solomon gives these these kind of four two-part commandments. They build upon each other. and, And he's telling his son, go after wisdom with everything that's in you. He says in verse 1, he says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. He says, son, I want you to, to receive this. Not just have an open mind, not just consider my words, but actually to take my words, to receive them and cherish them. I want you to treasure them. Take them and, and place them in a, in a, in a place, you know, put them behind lock and key. Make this something that is so internalized to you that you consider it of great value. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I have stored up your word or wisdom in my heart that I I may not sin against you. Solomon sees storing up the word of God, God's wisdom in his son's heart as a key to him living a life that honors and glorifies God. Secondly, we see in verse 2, he says, says, making your, your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. He says, make your ear attentive, you know, pay attention. It's kind of, like, kind of literally the idea of like cupping your ears. Like if you're trying to listen to someone and you can't quite hear them, you're hard of hearing, and you cup your ear in order for them to hear you. We're leaning in, we're listening. It's kind of like if wisdom was a person, it's like putting your phone down, face down, and making eye contact, right? Like we're not going to text, we're not going to get on Facebook, we're going to pay attention to what this person has to say. We're focusing He says, incline your heart. In other words, train or bend your heart towards wisdom, towards understanding. Even though maybe your character or your personality or your background or or, or even your desires might be contrary to the wisdom that's being put before you, if this is truly good, then train yourself to listen for this wisdom. It's kind of like if you're having a really bad hair day. I have this one cow lick on the back of my head. I've had it ever since I was a little kid. And if I get the wrong hair, like hairstylist or barber, they will butcher it and it will stand up like alfalfa. And, and so I have to train that piece of hair every single day to lay the direction I want it to lay. And that's a lot like our hearts. Our hearts are bent away from the wisdom of God. And we have to be train ourselves to, to lean into that wisdom. So, so make your attentive, incline your heart. Verse 3, it tells us to call out. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. So it's saying not only do you need to focus on it, not only do you need to train for it, not only do you need to consider it something as precious, but you need to ask for this wisdom. You need to call out for it. So we see this escalation and in intensity. You need to see the value of insight, the ability to perceive between good and evil, long for. And then verse 4, he says, he says, if you will seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. You need to see the great value of the wisdom that is being placed before you. He, he makes four very strong statements saying pretty much the exact same thing. He is trying to get his son's attention, and the text is trying to get your and I attention as well. Why do we need to pursue wisdom with such fervor? Because what's being presented here is the most important and most precious and most valuable thing that you could possibly give your attention to. Solomon is making a really big claim here in Proverbs chapter 2. He's saying this is the way to life. 
This is the way to a fulfilling life. This is the key to all of existence. This, this is the purpose of life. That's one of the most searched Google searches is what is the meaning of life? What's being offered right here is this is the meaning of life. And the Bible makes some really big claims that you and I are called to test and pursue and go after. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I am a way, a truth, or a life. He says, I am the only means to satisfaction. I'm the only means to salvation. I'm the only means to being reconciled with the God who created you. And there's this call and this invitation for us to seek after this wisdom, to come and to test it and to look at it and to observe it. And the most important question that any of us could possibly ever ask is, is this true and is this good? Is the gospel truly beautiful, that God would give his very own son for us, and that through that, through nothing that we would ever do, that we would receive this good news in this life. And this morning, if you're on a spiritual journey this morning, if you're not, you haven't yet trusted Jesus, you're in the perfect place. God invites you to ask these questions. Just like uh, it was really just incredibly timely that Kevin mentioned you guys are having the, the hard questions Q&A right after the service. God invites you to ask these questions. He invites you to test it. He invites you to look at the word and observe it and see if it's true. Because in verse 5, it says, if you will do these things, if you'll pursue after wisdom, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We think fear here, this is not like killer clown in a movie fear. This is not like being afraid of snakes. This is like, this is awe. This is might. This is seeing something so incredible that it takes your breath away. Imagine the first time that you saw the ocean or, or, or if you saw the Grand Canyon. There's this, this awe that leaves us silent. And if, we're, if you're committed to pursuing real and true wisdom, we're not talking about wisdom of, of your own making, but we're talking about true, transcendent wisdom, then it will lead you to God, where you'll see his greatness and his grandeur. And what it does is it humbles us before him. But not only does it help us to fear the Lord, it helps us to know the Lord. We see all the way back in Proverbs chapter 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What type of knowledge are we talking about? We're not just talking about facts about God. We're actually talking about a personal knowledge of God, an intimate knowledge of him, an obedience to his word. And God is constantly calling people, and he's constantly revealing himself to people. If you look at the stories throughout the Bible, we see God is pursuing his people. He's pursuing people and he's inviting them and he's calling them and drawing them close. That's not something that you see in any other world religion. God is either high and holy and mighty and above all things, or God is portrayed as very intimate and powerless. But what the Bible says is, no, God is actually both. God is big enough and powerful enough to give you a wisdom that can give true meaning to your life, but he's also near and close to you as a friend. That's the invitation that we're being given here. And then we see in our pursuit of this knowledge, in our pursuit of this wisdom, we see a twist in verse 6. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This seems kind of a strange statement, right? The Lord is giving us something that we're pursuing. 
So this isn't like, you know, national treasure pursuit where like Nick Cage is like stealing the Declaration of Independence and we got to go find some treasure that nobody wants us to find. This is actually God saying, no, I'm very readily willing to give you this wisdom. Come get it. Why do we pursue what God simply gives? Because pursuing wisdom leads us to God himself. That God is drawing us near. That the end goal of wisdom is not just simply that you can make right choices. It's that you can be rightly ordered to God himself. That you can find true hope and rest in God. And that the idea of pursuing this gift doesn't invalidate the fact that it's a gift. It doesn't defeat the purpose because pursuing wisdom isn't about earning it. It's about enjoying it. It's not like through our effort, God somehow gives us this wisdom and this truth. No, it's, it's by us longing after it with all of our hearts. God is gracious to give us a greater glimpse of his love and his glory for us. And it's kind of this mystery that we see in Philippians 2. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're being invited to pursue and enjoy this gift of wisdom that God's given us. So how do you pursue a gift? It's about how you value it. It's about how you esteem it or cherish it or use it. I want you to imagine a a, a child who's been given a stuffed animal. And if you have children, you can probably remember back when you were a child, you may have had that one stuffed animal that, you, that never left your side. It was a teddy bear or a lion. Mine was actually a big Winnie the Pooh. I think I slept with it until I was like 32. And, like, and so, but I, and so we, that, that teddy bear, or that, that, that dog or whatever it is, it just stays by your side. And whenever it's lost, you have to go get it. Whenever it, it gets dirty, you wash it. When, it. when an arm gets torn off, mom has to sew that thing back on because you're showing your love and your value of it by your pursuit of it. You pull it in for comfort. And you can look at a teddy bear or, or a stuffed dog or whatever, and you can look at it and tell how well it's been loved and valued and cherished and pursued. And you can look at the life of a believer who looks at wisdom in the way that they love and pursue it and cherish it. So let's pursue wisdom. Secondly, we're called to embrace wisdom as a loyal companion. You look at verse 7, it says, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Wisdom is like a close friend. In fact, if you look at the Proverbs and in other places in the Bible, they personify wisdom as a person. Wisdom is personified as a woman in some places. And so we look at this as wisdom as a close friend that helps us live a life saturated with the hope of God. That wisdom becomes this close friend that walks alongside of us and helps us do, as Eugene Peterson says, is walk a long obedience in the same direction. Seeing wisdom as a friend that walks with us down the path of righteousness helps us walk down that path. So make wisdom a close friend who won't let you go. So it's kind of like if you read the Lord of the Rings or you at least watched the movies, you have, you have Frodo and Samwise. So, so let, let you know, wisdom be your Samwise, who never leads your, leaves your side and is with you until the end. We need wisdom like a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so wisdom is a friend that helps protect us. We see this again in verse 7, that, it, that God stores up sound wisdom for the upright, and it's a shield to those who walk in integrity. The Lord wants to keep us from unnecessary pain. 
He wants to keep us from the ramifications of our sin. Look, we live in a broken world, and sometimes we can't escape the, uh, the, the effects and the ramifications of sin, but sometimes it's just because we made a dumb choice. Like, we made a dumb decision, and the, and the consequences of sin is pain. Look, I've heard it said that, you know, we wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun. That's the stupidest comment. I'm sorry. Like, that is, somehow that hasn't gotten baptized into, like, Christian lexicon. That's a dumb statement. That's like saying, you know what, like, drinking battery acid is fun. Like, no one has, in the history of the world, has said drinking battery acid is fun because it's not fun. It will kill you. And in the same way, sin leads to death. It's not fun. It's fleeting. It's destructive. And it only leads to suffering and pain. And what God is doing by giving us wisdom is attempting to keep us from that path of suffering and pain. It says it's for the upright, those of integrity, not people who are perfect, but for those who've trusted in God, they can generally say that wise choices lead to greater delight in God. God's law is meant to safeguard us. It stores up for those who trust God. Verse 8 says it guards the paths of justice and watch, is watching over the way of his saints. It watches over what we can't see. It prepares for us the path that we're walking. It's kind of like the benefits of exercise. Look, we've all read articles about the benefits of exercise. I don't do it often enough. But we know that if we exercise 30 minutes a day, then typically we're going to live a longer life. We're going to be able to, you know, or we're going to have lower cholesterol and all of these things. It helps, helps us prevent a heart attack down the road. It helps us lower our chances of disease. In the same way, God's law safeguards us from sin. It gives us discretion, as verse 11 says, the ability to be ready for what we can't really see ahead of us. So wisdom is a friend who protects us. Secondly, wisdom is a friend that shapes us. We look at verse 9. It says, Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. See, what happens is is wisdom is a friend that forms us and shapes us over time. The more time that you spend with a friend, the more that you become like that friend. Like if I talk to a friend from the South, my Southern accent starts to come back. And it's, and it's, it's bad news. And I, and I keep, you know, I keep saying like, I'm not going to get into that, but like we say, it just, it's bad. Like, and so the more time you spend with someone, the more you become like that person. The more time we spend with wisdom, the more we become like God. And it forms us over time and it forms us and helps us to love what God loves. And what we see here in verse nine is that it actually begins to become more intuitive, like following Jesus and making wise decisions is something that begins to come out of our hearts. It says here, righteousness, justice, equity, every good work. That's kind of a a summation of how God's people in the Old Testament were to live. The Israelites were people who had seen and known God, and because of that, they were to live as a reflection of that to the world. They were to live righteous and holy lives. For, as verse 10 says, wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And so what's happening here is as wisdom gets into us, as wisdom gets deep into our hearts, as we we internalize wisdom, it changes us. It changes what we love. It changes what we value. It changes what we think about. And it takes our eyes off of ourself and places our eyes upon God. And there's this process that Iris Murdoch calls unselfing. She says, change of being is not brought about by straining and willpower, but a deep, 
our long, deep process of unselfing, of seeing that we ultimately don't know best, that it's not all about us, and that God is trying to work righteousness in and through us That we're called to love our neighbors, we're called to live righteously, we're called to pursue justice, but that first, that love for neighbor first flows from a love for God. And that the gospel can change our political views, the gospel can can change a hateful heart, that, that it presses us towards loving others, but it's always an outflow of God's work in us first. See, right living doesn't make you holy. It's not not here saying that if you'll simply be righteous and just and have equity and every good path, then you'll get wisdom. It's saying, no, God is making you holy, and the outcome of that is that you'll live a righteous life. So so what is God shaping in you? What is God doing in you? As, As you come daily to the hope of Jesus, what is he trying to shape and change in you? Is it the way that you love or care for your family? Is it your workplace? Is it your neighborhood? Is there some sort of habit or sin that God is trying to work out in you? Cling to wisdom as a close friend who walks with you in that. Thirdly, we're called to apply wisdom to life's most pressing issues. So pursue wisdom, embrace it as a friend, but then take the wisdom that you're learning and apply it to every area of your life. And so again, there's two paths that are set before us. There's the path of wisdom, and there's the path of folly. There's the path of wisdom that protects us, and there's the path of folly which leads us towards death. And what Solomon is telling his son here, starting in verse 12, is that you can actually take the wisdom that I'm telling you, the wisdom I'm trying to get you to believe and internalize, and you can apply it to anything. And he brings up probably the two most apparent ways that the son of the king could apply wisdom. And that's power and sex. These are two areas that we desperately need wisdom in, is the idea of power and sex. Look, what are the two, most, the two leading marital issues for pretty much every married couple? It's power disguised as money and sex. Look, law and order wouldn't even exist if power and sex weren't a problem. Every episode comes down to one of those two things. It's either power or sex. And these are the, probably the two areas we tend to want autonomy and control more than any other. In verses 12 through 15, we kind of see what happens when people pursue power at any cost, whether that's money or achievement or success or promotion or status. And what's being portrayed here is this willingness to leave the path of righteousness, to, to leave the path of given wisdom to us by God and go down the way of evil, and it really all starts with the second half of verse 12 with perverted speech. What's being said here is that there's a lie that is being told to us that we need to look outside of God's guidance, outside of God's wisdom, and that's where real happiness comes from. And it's, it's interesting that the word perversion is used because to pervert something is to take something good and to twist it into something evil. To take something good and true and slightly twisted. And this is the oldest trick in the book. You go all the way back to creation and Adam and Eve, the serpent took the truth of God. That God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan slips in and says, in a world full of yeses, I'm going to take that one no and make it look like the biggest restriction in the world. Did God really say that? 
Did God really say that you couldn't have that? God must be holding out on you. Success itself is not evil, but it makes a really poor God. And when we believe the lie, the, the, the perversion, that success or, or achievement or power or money is what's truly going to fulfill our souls, it becomes a God or an idol. And as verse 13 says, it gives us the temptation to forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, that I can get what I value most by doing whatever it takes. That, that I can leave what God calls true and good and beautiful and right and just, and I can do what the, the Bible says is that we call it unfair balances or unfair weights, where people would cheat people in order to get their own monetary gain. And we may, may not be doing that literally, but sometimes we feel the temptation to operate in the gray areas at work, or we work unceasingly without rest, or we do so at the expense of our families, or we feel the need to be cutthroat, or we believe in any area of our lives that the ends simply justify the means. And we see that as we continue down the path, that we take another step in verse 14, that we could, could easily begin to rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. That there's this dangerous path where we begin to call what God calls evil good. There's a reason that it was called the good path. It's giving this imagery that in Old Testament times that you had these very well-lit, well-known roads that were heavily traveled, and that's where safety was. And what's being pictured here is, is taking a detour route away from that safety and putting yourself in harm's way. And they're finding that to be good. And this morning, if, if, you're, if you find yourself on that path, if you find yourself like buying into that temptation and into that lie, and there's some sort of certain, certain sin that you're struggling with, if you're still feeling the conviction of that sin, that is a good thing, and that's a warning from God. But when you begin to cease to feel that conviction, you're in a dangerous spot. And I pray that the Lord would reach you there before you end up in verse 15 where it says that now the, 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 these crooked men, these, these evil men have made that path their own. There, there's a sense of ownership here. It says men whose paths are crooked. It, that path of evil has become their path. They've taken ownership over it. And then when we think about the path of evil, the path of evil is simply the path of self. It's the path of selfishness. That I am number one and I'm going to do what benefits me most. It's the path of self-centeredness. It's the path of, of self-expression. That I'm going to do what I feel like I need to do. And self-identity, I am who I say I am. And self-autonomy, that no one can tell me what to do. And that is the root and the height of sin. That I know better than anyone else, including God. And that's the path that leads to death. And we see this continue in the second pitfall. I'm going to get to some good news in a minute, I promise. Um, we see that in the second pitfall in verse 16 with sexual immorality. It says here, it says, so will you be delivered if you, if you trust the wisdom, if you apply the wisdom I've been telling you about, to be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Wisdom protects us and forms us to keep us from the trap of looking at sex as an all-consuming idol. The forbidden woman is this picture of this woman who's married and adulterous, who's forsaken, as verse 17 says, the companion of her youth, her husband, and she's forgotten her God and her covenants. 
that there's this lure of sexual temptation. Now, I want to be really careful here. This, this passage is not picking on women. It's not saying that men, men are somehow the victim and that women are always this seductress tempter. That's not what's being said here. You need to think about the context that this is Solomon talking to his son. So his greatest temptation would be something like this. So you need to, if you kind of put yourself into the story, imagine whatever your temptation would be outside of God's design for sex and marriage. Outside of the, of the beautiful confines of marriage between man and woman that God created sex for with the deepest intimacy, joy, and expression possible in mind. And so what, the, what God's word tells us, is, he, and here's what it tells us, and here's what Solomon's telling his son, is that if you venture outside of that, all it's going to do is lead to brokenness and pain. It's just going to lead to suffering. And Solomon, better than anybody else, knows that. A man who had over 700 wives and over 1,000 concubines. This guy had tried it all and knows that everything outside of that just leads to, to a bunch of pain. But that's the lure of sexuality and sex. Verse 16, it says that it's like, it, it, it describes the adulteress's words as smooth words, enticing, attractive, alluring. It seems and feels right. And it's led to, to a few cultural attitudes about sex that Tim Keller tells us about. He says that we often look at sex simply as, as a natural appetite. It's just, it's like eating. You get hungry, you eat, you want, you want sex, you go find sex. There's no commitment, there's no joy, there's no love, you just need it. Some have looked at sex as this necessary evil. It's just this lower animal passion. It's, it's viewed as dirty or degrading. Some have viewed it as this self-expression that says, this is who I am. But none of those really deal with the longing that, that, uh, that, that sex is really going after. And so sex really asks the question. It asks, can I be fully known, vulnerable before another person and still not feel the guilt and shame that it brings? And so what Solomon is saying here is that sexual immorality will rob you of fully enjoying the gift of God that God has given us in this, where you can be known and protected and cared for and loved. That sex outside of God's design creates doubt and comparison, and verses 18 and 19 tell us that it leads down toward the path of the departed and that those who go down this path will not regain the paths of life. That doesn't mean that we're irredeemable, but if we give ourselves over to sex as God and as the controller of our lives, it will destroy us. But God has designed it to create assurance and safety inside the confines of marriage. So we're called to, to apply wisdom, to pursue a practical knowledge, to embrace this insight and act with resolve upon God's word, trusting his promises that he's good and he's leading us to life. And so here at the end of chapter 2, we see that the, the, the two paths lead to two different outcomes. The path of wisdom, as verses 20 and 21 tell us, lead to life. So if you walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous, um, for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. And for the wicked, the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So it seems really simple, right? It seems really simple, like choose the right way and then God's going to bless you. Choose the wrong way and then, and then you're going to face judgment. But it's not quite as simple as that. It's not simple, quite as simple as making all the right choices and hoping it works out in the end. Because if I'm honest, my life looks a whole lot like the way of the wicked and the evil sometimes. Not just in my actions, but in my thoughts. 
in my intentions, in my desire to validate myself by what I do or how much I earn or what I achieve, in the temptations of my heart, that if I really were to put my life up as an example of, of, of one of these paths, it often doesn't look like the path of, of, the, of wisdom. Have any of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can we actually say that we've walked the path of wisdom well enough to receive life? So how can we have hope here? It's because Jesus is our true wisdom. That Jesus is wisdom personified. That Jesus is the true son who listened to the father who pursued wisdom with all that he had, that he embraced wisdom as an old friend and grew in knowledge of the Lord and grew in intimacy with him, who applied the truth of wisdom and lived a truly righteous and good life that you and I could not live and that he gave that to us on our behalf, that he walked the path of righteousness, he walked the path of wisdom, that Jesus walked not only that, but he also walked the path of the wicked by going to the cross, the only person who didn't deserve it, dying in our place so that sinners like you and I could be called wise, could be called good, could be called righteous. That we are both sinner and saint and that we are now called beloved children of God for those who cling to the grace given in Jesus. That the true path of wisdom that you and I are being called and invited to walk down is the gospel to cling to it, to preach it to ourselves, and that when we sin, we can confess 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our hope and our wisdom is Jesus, and Jesus leads us to life. So which path do you find yourself on this morning? Do you find yourself on the path uh, of wisdom in the gospel, or do you find yourself on the path of self, which leads suffering and pain? If you've trusted Jesus this morning, you don't have to try to white knuckle, uh, you know, obey your way into the kingdom. You can rest in the hope of the gospel today. And this morning, if you've not yet trusted Jesus, I want you to heed the invitation that's being given to you here to seek wisdom and to embrace Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you've loved us. That, God, you've given us a wisdom that can help us get through this life. But ultimately, Lord, it's not just about us making right decisions or, or, or having happy, fulfilled lives here. But, Lord, it's about truly being fulfilled in you. Receiving true wisdom that we cannot get on our own. But yet you, Jesus, gave us yourself. That you are the true wisdom that we all need. And you're the true wisdom that is available to us all. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that for those of us who have trusted Christ, we would lean on that gospel. We would preach that gospel to ourselves each day and remind ourselves that we need you every hour. That there's not a moment that we don't need you, Lord. There's not a moment that we don't need to train and incline our hearts toward the gospel. Lord, and I pray for those this morning who don't yet know you. We're so thankful that they're here, that they would heed the invitation to come and to follow you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.